I don't think there is a more emotional scene to sort of parachute into than perhaps this scene that we have in front of us here in Acts chapter 20. And I would even say that it's probably one of the more emotional scenes in the entire New Testament. As Paul is very much saying a farewell and bidding adieu, so to speak, to the elders from the church at Ephesus. And he's saying this because, if you recall, about halfway through his third missionary journey, Paul was just struck by this strong desire and determination to go back, to return to Jerusalem with the gospel. If you flip back a page to chapter 19, you can look at verse 21 where we first kind of get a glimpse at this, at what is in Paul's heart and mind. After all these events going through um, uh, uh, sort of northern Asia there where, um, where uh, Ephesus was. Now it says after these events Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. Saying after I have been there I must also see Rome. And of course you know that this comes out of Paul's heart. He has a desire to keep spreading the gospel far and wide. And he desires to go back to Jerusalem with that same gospel. Regroup so to speak. And he has his eyes set for Rome and of course beyond. Even at the end of his letter to the church at Rome. He has a desire to go to the ends of the world. At least in those days which would be Spain roughly. But he has this desire, as he here lets it be known, to go back to Jerusalem. And in all likelihood, Paul hasn't been to the city of God, so to speak, since the Jerusalem Council, which you would find back in Acts chapter 15, which is roughly about a decade since. And on previous visits, Paul has not, very, uh, has not been greeted very well by the constituents of Jerusalem. As in the last time in chapter number 9, he was chased out of Jerusalem after receiving multiple threats of death. And of course, Jerusalem at this time, in this time period, was still a hotbed of religious friction, as you might know. The doctrines of the apostles that had spread far and wide into all these regions surrounding Jerusalem. They had seen the gospel of Christ and the doctrines of the apostles flourish and thrive. Leading those who were blind and caught in sin into light and out of darkness into the righteous glory of Christ himself. And all the while Jerusalem remained largely blind. To the truth about Jesus Christ. To the truth of the gospel. The religion of Jerusalem was very much still tethered, tied, and and ensnared by the old ways of Judaism. With the the quote-unquote new way of Jesus being seen as not only unorthodox, but heretical and blasphemous. Such is why many of the Jews were, so to speak, following Paul around, plotting to kill him, plotting against him. You can see this earlier in chapter number 20. If you look, look at chapter number 20 at the very beginning. It says, after the uproar, which is an uproar in the city of Ephesus, Paul sent for his disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Wherever he was going, there were Jews, these high-ranking officials, 
following him, plotting against him, trying to trip him up. And yet we see in Paul this desire, this strong determination, this resolve, as he terms it, to return to Jerusalem. And I think you can imagine, as Paul sees this gospel, this gospel that he's been given by Jesus Christ, and as he preaches it, and he's preaching it far and wide, and he's seeing life after life and region after region changed by this gospel... That he was struck, I can only imagine, that he was struck by the spiritual blindness of his own people. The people of God, no less. Paul, being a Jew himself, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says in the book of Philippians, it makes sense, I think, where this determination comes from. We can, we can get it, it makes sense. It comes from his own enthusiasm. To see his own people, his own nation, so to speak, be reconciled to God by Jesus Christ, the very guy that they had conspired against and plotted against to crucify, he is now preaching as the one that can free them, free them forever. It comes this enthusiasm for the gospel and bringing it to the people of Jerusalem. It comes from that desire to see his people changed. And it comes from the Holy Spirit, of course, back in chapter 19, verse 21 again, as he says, as it says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit. And I can imagine, and this is not technically in the text, but just reading, if you read chapter 19 and chapter 20, you kind of get this idea as Paul is going from one congregation to the next, and he's encouraging them, even as Luke just briefly passes over the idea that Paul was on a preaching tour of Macedonia and Greece. You can imagine that his thoughts, Paul's were, were always sort of trailing back to Jerusalem. Even though he was here preaching the gospel, he was always having this desire to go back there. So much so that as he comes to the end of this third missionary journey, he skips. He just passes by many of the churches that he had visited along the way because he didn't want to be detained anywhere for too long a period of time. Notice chapter 20, look at verse 16. Notice it says, and Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. Why? For he was hastening. He was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul knew that spending any amount of time in any one location might deter him. He might have too long of a visit so he determines to skip actually going into modern, what we would know as modern day Turkey. That's what it's, what it's meaning by Asia. He wants to skip past that northwestern sector of Asia because he wants to be in Jerusalem. He's resolved to be there by the day of Pentecost, roughly about 30 years since the events of Acts chapter 2, for what it's worth. So what... What does he do? Well, he summons, as we know from verse 17, he summons the elders from Ephesus to meet him in this port city of Miletus, which is roughly 50 miles south of Ephesus. And he calls them there. And this brings up an interesting question. Why just the elders from Ephesus? Why didn't he call a bunch of different elders from a bunch of different places and have a sort of little mini pastor's conference? As he's, he, he knows what he's going to tell them. He knows he's going to say uh, farewell to them for the time being. I have other places that the Spirit is calling me to. 
But he calls just the Ephesian elders. Probably an indication of the level of influence that that congregation had in that region. But also I think it has to do with the amount of time that he spent with them. If you go back to chapter number 19, look at verse 10. Where he's in Ephesus and it says this continued. This, uh, Well actually let's back up. Verse number 8, and it says, And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This was Paul's habit, preaching right in the very heart of town. But with some, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So from this little hall where Paul is preaching the gospel to the people of Ephesus, it says there that everything happens where all of the residents of Asia learn about the same truth, the truth about Jesus. This church was very dear to Paul's heart. And here, this kind of sets the stage for us at the end of chapter 20, where we have this emotional farewell. Where Paul is saying goodbye to it. He's sort of closing the chapter on one sort of season of ministry with these dearly beloved saints from the church at Ephesus. And he's sort of opening the door to what he knows or believes is the next phase of ministry for him. And here also he reveals what I would hasten to call the beating heart of faith. As Paul in this farewell speech answers a a number of questions that many had perhaps were, uh, were thinking about, were wondering, were curious about, but had never asked out loud. Not the least of which is this, just simply why. Why? Why are you doing this, Paul? What's your motivation? Why do, you, why do you keep going and going after all of this turmoil, after all of this frustration, after all of this controversy? How are you still preaching the very gospel that has you marked as one of the most hated men in the first century? Why do you keep going? Why do you keep doing that? After so much hurt that you've seen, not only in others, but after so much hurt that has been caused and inflicted upon you personally. Why? Maybe you're curious to know the same things. At least I I know I am. (laughs) It's no secret that Paul's ministry career, if you will, has not been a cakewalk up to this point. It has not been a walk in the park. There's nothing that has come easy for the Apostle Paul. It's been a slog. It's been a, a frustrating sort of trudge through the mud of frustration and controversy and hurt. Case in point, again, back in chapter number 19, he preaches the gospel in Ephesus, and that preaching almost starts a citywide riot. Because people are repenting. People are being changed. And I can only imagine that some of that had to have gotten to Paul. Again, this is not in the text. But you have to imagine Paul being a human... And he's constantly being outed as this hated man, this man who is is sort of receiving all of this spit and vitriol because of the things that he's saying. He's this man who is constantly disliked and, and, and being insulted and the people are throwing death threats at him. It had to have gotten to Paul on occasion. He's human. 
I mean, how would you feel if you were the most hated man wherever you went? No matter what city you were going to, people would hate you. People would dislike you for because of who you believed, because of what you believed and who you were talking about. And yet despite all that hatred, despite all of that vitriol and spit, Paul keeps going. He keeps on keeping on for the sake of Christ. Why? And now on top of all of that, Paul has his sights. He almost has blinders on, like you would put blinders on a mule. And he says, I got to get to Jerusalem. (laughs) The place where he was perhaps hated the most. There's, yes, there were Christians in Jerusalem, but that was the sort of the, the seat of power for the Judaizers, so to speak. These ones who were so committed and married to the old ways of Moses and to keeping people under the law. There was no love for the apostle whose message was all about the grace of Jesus. So what would inspire someone like this to do that? What would keep Paul going? Through all that resistance, through all that controversy, through all that hostility, through all that hatred. Well, Paul tells us. Again, look at the text. Look at verse 18. He calls the elders to him. And then he begins this speech. This beautiful sermon. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold... I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And then get this, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He begins by reminding these elders, these pastors, these other guys from Ephesus of what brought him to their region in the first place. Namely, it was this desire, an insatiable desire, as he says, to declare, to teach, and to testify the gospel. As Paul says, both to the Jews and to the Greeks. That's all I really cared about. That's all I really had in mind. It was because I've, been, I've received this gospel. I've been given this commission as an apostle of Christ to preach everywhere. And that's why I came. I came to do just that. And he reminds them about how the fact that I've spent two years with you. I've been able to carry out the desire. I've been able to fulfill that calling in this place with you. As I've declared the word of the Lord to you, me and my constituents, we've been able to bring the gospel to this place. No matter what the venue was, no matter what the audience, as he says there in, in, uh, uh, in verse number 20, how in both in public and from house to house, he never shrank from declaring what was profitable to them. 
Paul was, was never recalling him. He was never backing down from declaring that sound doctrine of God. What was profitable, as you can go to verse 27, where he kind of clarifies what is profitable. Verse 27 of the same text. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Even when Paul was persecuted or slandered or insulted or threatened with death itself, Paul was never hesitating. He was never backing away from making that gospel of Christ known to every single person he came in contact with. It didn't matter who they they were or where they were from. He was telling them about how Jesus was the one, as we just sang about, was the one who became sin for them, that they might become the righteousness of God through him. That was Paul's message. And why was he so burdened with this? Because I think he knew that this is the only truth that mattered. The only truth that mattered in the scope of history, and and it didn't matter where he was or what, what context, what circumstance, what the audience was, the only truth that mattered was conveying that very fact of the gospel. And so, with the same level of resolve and commitment, Paul here is now articulating the fact that his heart, my heart, is set on going to Jerusalem to bring that same good news to them. My people, the people of God. And yet I love how he clarifies, even though I don't really know what's going what's to happen to me when I get there. Verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained. I am compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await. He expresses this resolve. I'm going to follow the Lord wherever the Spirit might lead me. And right now he's leading me, I'm sorry to say, Ephesians. He's leading me away from you, uh, closing this door, and he's opening me up to another one. And I'm not really entirely sure what's going to happen to me when I get there. Maybe imprisonment, maybe chains. His fate is largely unknown. And yet, what do we read in Paul's Heart. He's committed to following the Lord wherever that might lead him. Whatever that might mean for him. And that this, I think, is the, the quintessential example, the best picture, I think, of what we can uh, glean that what faith looks like. This is what faith looks like. This is what faith sounds like. This is what faith means. Following the Lord in faith, not really knowing what that following and what that faith might bring your way. The 20th century Baptist theologian Oswald Chambers, who you might be familiar with through his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, says, and I think one of the best quotes that he ever penned, he says, quote, faith never knows where it is being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. And indeed, I think that's what Paul is exampling here. Not really sure what's going to happen to him, where he goes to that place, where he's being led. But it doesn't really matter because he loves the one who is leading him. That's Paul right here. The future is probably involves imprisonment. Probably means he's going to be incarcerated. Maybe even involves death. 
Otherwise, the future is a little bit murky, a little bit uncertain, but very precarious. But despite all that, it didn't matter. Despite all of that, the one thing he could be certain of, of was who was leading him. And it wasn't his heart. It wasn't his, this sort of weird desire in him. It was the, it was the Lord. It was the Holy Spirit himself. Paul wasn't one to just, just follow your heart or just follow your dreams. He was one who was following God himself. Is he believing in Jesus? Does not mean we have all the answers or know all of the reasons why. There will be several occasions, I do believe, when, yes, we who believe in Jesus won't know the reasons, won't know the answers. Believing in Jesus, you see, just means that you have put your life into much larger hands. Into nail-scarred hands, I might add. Into nail-scarred hands that hold the future. That's what faith means. And I do believe that there's likely coming a day, in the days ahead, when you and I will be faced with the same sort of scenario. When we will be called to follow the Lord without knowing what that fully means. What that fully entails. And God is going, calls us to step out in faith based on what we know about Him, not about what we know about the future. That's never certain. We are always called to step out in faith based on what we know about Him, who we can be certain about. And what allows us to do that? What allows us, what enables us, what fills us with the gumption to keep on keeping on for the sake of the gospel? What is, it, what, is, what is our certainty when we come to those crossroads, when we get to that place where we have to take the next step in life, even when those next steps seem so uncertain? Well, the answer is always the same. It's always the gospel. As Paul here says, I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Pause and consider his words for just a second. Even... With an imminent future involving imprisonment and affliction for sure. And what we would soon learn is fake trials, shipwrecks and being stoned and being hated even more. And even more beatings and even more trials and even more slander. Paul says, that doesn't really matter to me. In the King James, that very first phrase is, 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 is translated, none of these things move me. <laughs> Paul's life was not what was most important to him. The most important thing for Paul in Paul's life was being faithful, was following the ministry and the calling that he had received by God himself, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, being faithful to that. It doesn't matter. I don't, he basically says, I don't really care what is, await, what is waiting for me. That doesn't really matter to me. The only thing that matters to me is being faithful and committed to the very thing that God has called me to do. And what has God called Paul to do? His entire ministry and his entire calling was entirely concerned with an earnest declaration of the gospel of the grace of God. Nothing else mattered. 
Nothing else even came close to comparing to that. I think it's because Paul understood that he owed everything to that. Again, as we just sang, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That is Paul's testimony. If you read the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, if you read Galatians, if you read Philippians, Paul is never one to shy away from his story. He's one that makes it very apparent where he comes from. He came from those very people who are hating him. He was once that guy. I was once where you were. I was once a guy who was sold out, totally committed to persecuting those of the way. Those who were following this Jesus of Nazareth guy. I was sold out to it so much so that I was entirely committed to bringing people and putting them in chains, in bonds, and even making it certain that they would see death themselves. Because they believed in Jesus, that was Paul. And that's why he says in 1 Corinthians that he considers himself the least of the apostles. Or in 1 Timothy where he says, I am the chief of sinners. This is Paul, the guy that we hail as the greatest missionary the world has perhaps ever known. The greatest church planner, the greatest evangelist, the one who is is so key on forming the church of God. And yet he himself, in his own personal life with the Lord Jesus Christ, considers himself the chief of sinners. You want to know why Paul's soul is so sold out to preaching the gospel? Because he knows that's his only lifeline. I have no other business even talking to you elders, Paul, you can imagine saying, than, uh, than the, the, what has allowed me to, to do this in the first place. The very gospel of Jesus And so now, even though he was all but guaranteed a future involving chains and death, he's not moved by it. He's not shaken by it. He is undeterred and undistracted from this commitment he has, this resolve he has to boldly testify to the good news of God's grace. And as long as there is breath in his lungs, Paul was going to be found announcing that gospel, announcing that news, announcing the very fact that the the, the forgiveness of every sinner, both Jew and Greek, didn't matter what sin you had done. Your forgiveness is found in Jesus and his death and resurrection. That's Paul's mission. Yet even still, I'm struck by this scene. Because Paul faced, he has this determination, yes, preach the gospel to Jerusalem. Go back to that place where he's likely very uh, hated. He says, it doesn't matter. None of these things move me. I'm going to do it anyways. Because I'm led by the Spirit and by my faith. This type of courage strikes a chord with it, doesn't it? It's inspiring to hear these words from the Apostle Paul. It's convicting and it's challenging to hear these words being uttered. Who can say these things? Paul almost sounds like superhuman. He has to be some sort of super spiritual, super Christian being able to declare these things. My faith is not like that. If you were faced with the same scenario, would you be able to say the same thing? Knowing, more than likely, not only are you going to be hated, you're going to be chained, 
and likely be put to death. Would you be able to say like Paul, none of these things move me? I have to confess to you, I don't know if I could. I don't know. I don't know if I'd be able to say the same thing. So what allowed Paul to say this? You see, I think we have a terrible tendency to think that you and I could never get to Paul's level of faith. Paul has obviously, you know, clearly, he's tapped into some sort of secret sauce of faith. And he's up here. Paul, he's up here. We're, we're down here. Our faith is, we're never going to get to Paul's level. And I think that maybe there's some truth to that. He is, as we've already mentioned, he's an apostle that was chosen by the Lord in a very miraculous way to even more miraculously further God's kingdom and to establish the church of Christ in the known world. But as we've already mentioned, Paul was just a human. Flesh and blood like you and me, given to the same sort of anxieties and faults and and bouts with depression and despair and faithlessness. He wasn't that different. Which means, I would say, that the, the faith that Paul exhibits here, this courageous faith to say, none of those things move me. That's a faith that you and I can have as well. How then? Where's the secret sauce of Paul's faith? He tells us. By constantly and ceaselessly and every single day rehearsing the truth of the gospel of the grace of God to ourselves. All day, every day. When Paul says... I don't count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. How can he say that? Because it has been a constant pattern of Paul to not only testify to others, but to testify to himself what? The gospel of the grace of God. All day, every day, he has been on this sort of repeated pattern of preaching the gospel to himself and to others. And I would say, we need the same thing. We need the gospel on repeat. All day, every single day. Because we're just like Paul, we're sinners And if you took stock of your own life, perhaps I would even wager to say that you would have to admit like Paul that I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst sinner I know. And if you can't say that, if you can't declare that, then you really do need to do some introspection. Because you probably are the worst sinner you know. And I think that's why Paul was so vocal about the fact that his message... My message is very simple, Paul would say. I'm all about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Even as he writes to the first Corinthians in chapter, in first Corinthians chapter number two, he says that I decided to know nothing among you except how to have your best life now. I decided to know nothing among you except how you can have the best marriage you can have. I decided to know nothing among you except how you can be the most spiritual disciple ever by following steps one through seven. No. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. 
always and forever. That's what he keeps kept coming back to. He never moved on from the gospel. He never sort of found a, a new a, a sort of a new category of preaching that he could involve himself in. And nor should we. You not only need to hear the gospel when you first come to faith, when you first get saved, you and I need to hear the gospel during our whole life of faith, weekly, hourly, daily. You and I will never graduate beyond our need to hear the good news that Jesus Christ has borne the wrath and taken our sin off of our shoulders. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. May we never think in our prideful minds that we ever need to hear something more than that. That's what we need to hear constantly on repeat like a broken record. There will never be a day when we can move on to something else. And I would even hasten to say, it is only, it is only as the words of the gospel, the good news of forgiveness and grace and righteousness in Jesus and his death and resurrection. It is only as those words are repeated over and over and over again that the truth of the gospel is instilled in us as an objective fact. It very much is like a broken record. Maybe you don't know what that is. I love vinyl. I have a couple of vinyl records in my house. And depending on the shape or the condition of them, you put them on the platter and you put the little needle down. And sometimes those records, if they're not kept well, they'll start skipping. You know, here are the same measure of notes over and over again. And the, the record's spinning. The record seems like it should be playing something else. And maybe you're caught in the bridge of some song and you're like, wow, this bridge is going on for a really long time. <laughs> but actually, it's just the record skipping. The vinyl is skipping. Really, actually, technically, the needle is. And very often, that can get annoying, can it not? Especially if you're listening to a song that you don't very much like. And the needle keeps skipping. And the song keeps repeating the same song. And in fact, though, that's a very good analogy for what we do every single Sunday. Except this song never gets old. Or at least it shouldn't. The song of grace that we preach and declare from the, from the Bible that God has given us is like a record that keeps spinning. And every time we keep hearing the same song, we keep hearing the same notes that Jesus is the one who has redeemed us from our sin and from our lostness and from our death. And yet this song never gets old. We never get tired of hearing of it. Or at least I hope you don't. We never come to a point where we're like, man, can you just play a different song? What gives us courageous faith like Paul? Nothing more and nothing less than the very same gospel that Paul preached. Not a different gospel. Paul tells us that in Galatians. Let anyone who preaches another gospel be cursed. (laughs) He puts it as as plainly as you can get in the first chapter of Galatians. There's no such thing as another gospel. Everything else is just false and flat out cursed. The gospel that Paul was all about is the definitive message that your sins are mine 
have been taken away for good. As he says in Colossians, they've been canceled. They've been nailed to the tree. As Jesus was nailed, your sins were nailed. Why? Because he became sin for us. And when he was there taking care of your sin, he took care of it for good. He canceled it for good. And when Jesus was put to death, he put your sin to death. And this is not a theory. This is not a dream. This is not something that we have to debate. This is not something made up. This is not a wish upon a star. This is the the very good news that is the bedrock of all that we believe. This is the good news that comes from the very fact that the blood of the Son of God himself spilled and mixed with Jewish mud underneath a Roman cross. That's how real your salvation is in Jesus. He really died. And he really rose again. And these are the objective facts of our faith. And without them, we have nothing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that without them, if this didn't really happen, we are of all people most to be pitied. Our faith is vain, our preaching is vain, everything is vain. But instead, he goes on to declare that this is the truth. See, the gospel is an invitation. Not only to have your lives changed, but it's a repeated invitation, even to those who've been made new. Yes, you would say, I'm, I'm a believer. I don't need to hear about Jesus over and over again. No, you need to learn and know and say that even the likes of you and me, sinners, wretched sinners, saved by grace, it is an invitation to stake our whole lives, to stake the whole and, and put the whole weight of our whole lives on those very facts. That the fact of the crucifixion can't be changed. That the fact that Jesus taking your sin there can't be altered and it can't be sort of manipulated. There's no sort of addending the gospel. The gospel is what it is. It is Jesus taking your sin, subsuming it wholly, subsuming it and taking it away from you fully. And thereby declaring, it is finished. There is no more now working on your part in order to get into the favor of God. Jesus has won it. Jesus has earned it. And he holds it out to every single person on a matter of faith. That if you believe, you are cleared. You are free. And not only just free... But you're free to follow him wherever he might lead. You see, the more those facts are repeated, I am certain that the more our faith will be braced and strengthened and bolstered to withstand whatever the future might hold. You and I, we have no idea what 2024 is going to include for us. This year has already been a year of unexpectedness. Who would have thought that we would have been greeted with councils and trials talking about aliens in Congress? It's been a strange year. So who, everything is on the table. I mean, now that congressional hearings are happening about aliens, everything is on the table for 2024. Like, you should not bet on anything to happen. Don't go to DraftKings. Don't go to your sports book. You have no idea what's going to happen. But I think, I mean, that's just silly, but this is why I'm so stubborn in what I preach about. 
I'm always trying to track you back to Jesus. Why would I want to give you anything less? Why why would I pretend that there's something else, some better song, some better truth, some other thing that can prepare you to face the unpredictability of the future? I don't think there is. No. The only thing that can galvanize, that can strengthen your faith and mine. There's the only thing that can do that is the beating heart of faith itself, which is nothing but the good news of grace that is poured out because of God's Son. Your life and mine depends on hearing that news, yes, over and over and over again. My life depends on it. Because we're given, are we not, to forgetting it. It's that old saying that you need the gospel every day. Why? Because you forget it every day. You go on and live in your own merits, in your own accord, in your own strength. And you say, I can just, I can go on my, I don't, I don't need to have my time with God. I don't need to remind myself of my position and of my status in Him. I don't need any of that. I can just go about my day. I can float and coast through life. And I'm not here saying that you have to have a, a 5 a.m. quiet time with Jesus. But if there's never been a time when you, when you regularly get alone with God and remind yourself of who you are in Him because of God's Son, then I'm, I'm sorry to say that's why your faith is so weak. It's not about a special hour of the day. It's a regular habit. Of reminding yourself of the same old truth. The same old song. That Jesus paid it all. Now all to him I owe. And everything about me has been changed. Not because of me. Not because of something I've done. Not because of something that I'm trying to do. Not because of some level of spiritual maturity that I'm growing into. Not because of some level I've managed to attain. But solely because of grace. That's the reason we are here. There's sometimes when we can become so familiar with something that we can often treat it as cliche or tried or we can treat it with contempt. And oftentimes I think we don't actually let the words of amazing grace strike us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Is it really sweet to you? Or when the pastor gets up to talk about grace again, are you just, oh, this, this message again. I know where he's going now. I'm fine. And I've talked to people. And they're like, yeah, when you open the Bible now, sometimes I can predict where you're going with it. And I'm fine. If you, if you know me so well that you can know probably how I'm going to approach this thing and, and talk about this thing, I'm fine. As long as you don't get tired of hearing the same thing. Because not to pull the rug out from under you, but I'm not a very creative pastor. I have one message, and it's all about Jesus. I just put it in different places in the Bible. (laughs) I don't have anything else to give you other than Jesus and his redemption that he has accomplished for you. And you want to know how to face the future that's so unknown and so unpredictable and so uncertain and we have no idea what's going to happen. Who knows what's going to happen in the election? Who knows what's going to happen in our economy? Who knows what's going to happen on the global scene? 
None of these things should move us. Why? Because we, we are the believers in the objective facts of the gospel. That Jesus Christ was made sin for you and for me. Sinners to the core. And the one who knew no sin became sin for us. Why? So that we might be made the righteousness of God. We sung about the gospel all morning. And we've heard it. And now, my friends, we get to partake of it. It's so perfect of a morning to be able to talk about these very truths and to partake of Christ's body and blood by faith and to be able to be reminded that this is what what has been accomplished for the likes of you and me. That's what is going to give us spines, (laughs) backbones. You want to give your faith a backbone? Put the gospel on repeat. Put the vinyl of grace, if you will, to keep mixing metaphors and just let it skip. This is the beating heart of faith. Grace poured out on every single wretched sinner, you and me included. Let us pray.